This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Cakes, welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana East Hegler. This episode, we are going to be talking a lot about climate and tech. We have a fantastic guest with us today. She's been with us before, actually. It's a repeat guest, Maddie Stone. (laughs) Yeah, she was one of our favorite guests in season one. She's a very seasoned climate and tech uh, reporter. She's the founder of Earther at Gizmodo, and today is a freelance journalist, and you should just be following all of her work. Yeah, we talked to Maddie about all kinds of things, but here's the thing. We've talked to Maddie about tech and climate before, so we wanted to make it a little different, <laughs> a little fun this time. Yeah. So we had her on to talk about climate and tech through the lens of the HBO series, Silicon Valley. Right, right. Which has been <laughs> one of my pandemic obsessions, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So without any further ado, it's time. It's time to talk about climate. Maddie Stone, thank, welcome to Hot Take for the second time. Thanks for having yes. me back, guys. Yeah. Maddie, you're one of only a rare few repeat mm-hmm. Hot Take guests. <laughs> I, I, feel com- I feel completely honored by that. You were one of our uh, favorite guests in our first season. You're really good at talking about tech and understanding how tech interacts with climate. You founded Earther at Gizmodo, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Back in 2017, which, oh my gosh, feels like a lifetime ago. Seriously, yeah. does. Seriously. So, one of the things that I've been doing to to cope with the malaise of the pandemic is watching a shit ton of TV. I watch <laughs> it as I fall asleep at night. And, you know, that's probably not healthy. Probably has a lot to do with why I wake up in the middle of the night for no reason. But I don't care. <laughs> and there's some TV shows that I watch over and over again. And one of them is Silicon Valley because it's just so fucking stupid. And I don't understand what they're saying half the time, which means I can watch it over and over again because I, I don't know what a compressed algorithm is. Right? Like, so <laughs> I learned something new every time I watch the series. I was watching it this last time. I was noticing that there's actually a lot of climate themes in it. And I was like, you know what? I want to do an episode of Hot Take where I get to ask y'all some of these questions that I just feel so, I don't know, stupid is not the word, but just like completely uninformed about. So yeah, I know Amy can geek out on this stuff. I know you can geek out on this stuff. So I'm going to have y'all explain stuff to me like I'm five years old. I'm ashamed to say I haven't watched Silicon Valley yet, but I am excited to try to offer some semi-informed feedback on it. Well, I am excited that we're going to get to play some snippets of Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley for you in that case, Maddie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so good. I have to say as someone who I, I covered 
clean tech in Silicon Valley, you know, in the the sort of 2010s era. And I just feel like they, they hired the right consultants for this show. I think they really nailed it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. So one of the first things you notice about Silicon Valley, I actually think it's kind of true after watching a few tell-all documentaries about the tech world, is this mm. idea of this God complex idea of changing the world or making the world a better place. I'm the CEO of Amitabug, and we're here to revolutionize the way you report bugs on your mobile platform. Happen will revolutionize location-based mobile news aggregation as you know it. We're making the world a better place through Paxos algorithms for consensus protocols. And we're making the world a better place through software-defined data centers for cloud A better place through canonical data models to communicate between entities. A better place through scalable, fault-tolerant distributed databases with acid transactions. Rather than heating an entire room, Human heater is a microwave technology that can heat the surface of a person's skin instead, potentially saving millions in heating costs and helping the environment, thereby making the world a better place. <laughs> so I nope, guess no nope, nope. use of the word potentially in there. <laughs> yes. 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 So my first question is very basic. Like, are they really like that? A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think they pretty much nailed the vibe. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I would say broadly speaking, and I'm sure you can add to this, Amy, but my sense in covering Silicon Valley from an environmental and climate perspective is that the ethos really is that innovation is like the solution to all the world's problems and that these guys are the innovators who are going to create those solutions. And so that's sort of how they think of themselves as the, you know, the companies, the venture capitalists, you know, who are going to innovate the solutions to everything. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much, I would say how broadly speaking Silicon Valley sees itself. And there's certainly some companies who are like more, you know, sort of, I I guess, yeah, there's some that play into it more than others, but broadly speaking, that is the culture. I just think it's, there is definitely a deep conviction of their own brilliance. I don't know. I feel like Silicon Valley in its early days was like built by, you know, people who really did want to try to use technology to solve big problems. And the early internet, even, I think, you know, people forget like before the internet was privatized and and made into a place where people could make money that like the whole idea was that people could like share ideas and like work on, you know, cool tech together and all of that kind of stuff. So it comes from that sort of almost like hippy dippy ethos around technology, but like, it's not that way anymore at all. Can you say a little more about the early days of the internet? Because I don't think people forget that. I think I, I literally never knew. Oh yeah. I mean, the internet was like completely open source and was built by users. And it really wasn't until companies realized that they could, that this was like a huge potential moneymaker that like the internet was sort of privatized and like that, I mean, even like social media, for example, like that started, well, that was started by people, but then it was like, oh, companies wanted to not just harness 
the buying potential of those people, but also to capture the the data, how people were using things, but also how they were talking about things. And then a lot of the like PR and advertising companies got in the mix early on because they saw the potential for what is now influencer culture. Interesting. Um, and they fucking ruined the internet. I think an important thing to say kind of early on in this conversation is that there are a lot of really smart people, you know, working for big tech companies. And it, you know, it's not, we can make fun of the culture, but it's, it's not to say that there are not smart people working there who genuinely believe that they, you know, or want, genuinely want to solve the world's problems. Like that's- A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There is, there's like really smart, really well-intended people and then I think there is also this like thing that happened in Silicon Valley where a lot of a lot of people, whether they were smart or well-intended or not, like were told that they were geniuses and made a shitload of money. So there's mm-hmm. a tendency to overvalue mm-hmm. technological solutions to things in general. And, you know, it's, it's like everyone has a PhD from Stanford or Berkeley, right? So, like, right. They're, so they're pretty convinced of their own brilliance and a little bit of their superiority over other thinkers on various subjects. I would add, Amy, that as you alluded to a moment ago with um, your point about the early internet, like these are not cute little scrappy startups anymore that we're talking about. We're talking about some of the largest, you know, most powerful multinational corporations on the planet. Like there definitely still is a little bit of that like feel that that scrappy startup feel, but like it's absolutely unwarranted for companies like Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft. Right. What I actually find really interesting about this is that they create this culture of we're changing the world, we're making the world a better place. And that attracts these, a certain type of employee who really buys into that and is really passionate about it. It's kind of similar to what you see in the nonprofit sphere, which is where I've spent the bulk of my career. And so you attract people with that sort of mission, right? Like tech companies are like private companies that tend to, with these sort of cultural ideas, cater to people who are very mission-driven. So that's mm-hmm. an interesting combination. And when those folks find out that their company is not living up to their morals, they get pissed. And I right. think that's really interesting when you see those types of employees go up against their employer. And I think that's created a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. And that's something we've been seeing a lot in the tech climate space in recent years is companies, you know, making choices that are obviously harmful for the planet or just by virtue of the fact that there are huge multinational corporations that have an enormous carbon footprint, you know, having a certain amount of responsibility and maybe not taking enough aggressive action and living up to that responsibility and their employees being like, hold up, you know, I wanted to work at this company because I thought that I was making the world a better place. And now I find out that you're like selling custom software solutions to Chevron. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. So yeah, what you said, Mary, is absolutely true. There's there's a, a culture of, I think, speaking up and, you know, wanting to make your company a better place. And we're really seeing some of these employees hold their employers to the fire over climate stuff in recent years. Yeah, definitely. I think the last time we had you on was right in the thick of the climate protest at Amazon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, 
a lot of the climate advocates, this was like January, 2020. This was um, January, 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And there were like all of these developers who were like having climate protests against Amazon and they got fired. Yeah. That's right. But like did it on purpose. Like they knew they were going to get fired and just really wanted to take a stand. And I think there's something really uh, interesting yeah. and kind of special about that. Yeah. And in fact, just as a, a little bit of a news peg for that, there was an investigation by the National Labor Relations Board into the firing of two of the founders of the group you were referring to, Mary, the Amazon Employees for Climate Justice. And that investigation recently determined that retaliation by Amazon of firing those employees was illegal. So oh, wow. um, not yet what? clear what that's going to mean, but that was kind of a big deal decision that just came out recently. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, I think that was like early April. So it was pretty recent. I was just going to mention that, you know, this whole idea of making the world a better place, it kind of seems like any, and when I watch a lot of these tech documentaries, like sometimes it kind of feels like people believe that any innovation is good innovation. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> of like the Theranos documentary. <laughs> Like that didn't seem like a good idea to begin with, but because it was like so different and so outlandish, people were like, yeah, let's do it. Like this idea of like bet on anything Mm -hmm. and just taking into account how incredibly undiverse Silicon Valley is, Mm -hmm. which I think the show also kind of captures that there's, I don't remember a single black character. Right. And that's pretty accurate, right? Yeah. I mean, I think some of these companies are, you know, starting to be a little bit more self-reflective about this, but I think it's certainly still the case that there's a real diversity problem within most of the major Silicon Valley tech companies. Yeah. So I think there definitely is a diversity problem. And yeah, some of these big systemic issues that we're talking about I think would certainly, you know, it, these companies would certainly benefit from having more diversity, particularly in the upper echelons to help them make decisions about sort of what their company values and what they want to be that aren't just, that don't just come off like PR moves or completely tokenistic. Yeah. Right. I mean, that does seem to be a thing that comes up in the show a lot, where it's like they have these morals and then when it's beneficial, they put those morals aside, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of moments where it's, well, if I don't break the rules, if I don't break the law in a lot of cases across the course of the series, the company won't survive. And so they decide that the company surviving is more important than their ethics. And it happens Mm -hmm. over and over again. They're like, okay, that was over. Now we're going to play straight and narrow. And then it goes on and on up until the very end of the show. And it's, I, yeah, I wonder if you guys could comment on how common that really is. I mean, I think that totally gets into that whole thing about saving the world and just like conflate intentions with behavior, you know, or mm-hmm. or like intentions with outcomes. Like, that's cool that your intention was to do good things and that you didn't mean to be racist, but yeah. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can have, you know, a corporate mission statement that says we're committed to diversity and we're committed to solving the climate crisis and it can say all the right things, but your practices can not reflect that. And, um, right. 
then it's meaningless. Right. I would just, a related idea to something you mentioned a moment ago, Mary, this idea that all innovation is good innovation. I think I would put that a little bit differently. I would say that the, the way I see these companies presenting themselves is as innovators, but not as the deciders of how that innovation gets used. So mm. they kind of put themselves on a pedestal of, we're just these really smart folks who are going to, you know, create tools. And then because we live in a capitalist society and we love capitalism, we're not going to, you know, make decisions about who gets to use those tools. We're just going to bring brilliant people together to create them. And then hopefully they'll be used by the right people to make the world a better place. But obviously Mm -hmm. that's not always the case. That's right. a, that's a great point. I feel like that's, you know, you did that story for drilled on Autodesk that I think is a great illustration of that Maddie, where it's like, they're like, Hey, we just offer, you know, design tools. It's not our fault that pipeline companies want to use them to design pipelines or right. even like the Substack stuff. It is the same exact thing, right? They're like, we're just designing mm-hmm. a tool. And in their case, they were doing significantly more than just providing a tool. But Mm -hmm. that is like such a common kind of narrative of we can't be expected to have any influence on how our technology is used or by whom or to do what. And like, we shouldn't even be asked to. It goes back to this like deeper aversion to being perceived as like political and making, you know, choices that would impact their potential clientele. There's obviously a bottom line motivation there. Yeah, I want to put a pin in the Substack thing because I do want to really get into that later and explain what it is. Okay. Uh, because right. we have some personal experience with Substack, all, <laughs> all three, of, three us. of us. That's yeah. True. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, sec- I, before we get there, I want to talk about something a little bit more fun. And it's only fun because I don't know anything about it. Okay. Let's talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You tell me what you know about Bitcoin as a jumping off point. Okay, sure. Well, I'm pretty sure it was founded by a Japanese guy. Or guys or girls going by the name Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008. True identity still unknown. Okay, look, every day I read an article about how we're in a Bitcoin bubble. And who is writing those articles? I don't want to say the establishment, but is it possible that Warren Buffett called Bitcoin a pyramid scheme because he has 92 billion conventional dollars to protect let's say he's right let's say bitcoin dies so what myspace friendster they both died but they paved the way for other social media tribe like facebook and twitter to completely overrun the planet crypto is out there and it's not going away it just feels sketchy in the same way that a new internet is sketchy, Richard? What? What is crypto, if not decentralized, anonymous, secure, and an existential threat to the powers that be? I would think that you'd be all in on something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I've watched that scene a million times, and I'm still so fucking confused about what Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is. Like, I mean, should I take all my money out the bank and put it in the mattress? That's what I took. It's actually interesting because it does connect to what we were talking about with the early internet in this way, where like Bitcoin also cryptocurrency was created 
to create, you know, decentralized banking that was like not controlled by these very powerful, wealthy people and organizations. Like the idea was very good. It's just that the execution it's, I don't know. I think this is a thing you see over and over again with tech is like someone with very like pure intentions and good ideas start something and then very quickly gets overrun by people with nefarious intentions (laughs) Or, or just with like pure profit motive that doesn't, that don't really care about the social side of things so right like tesla investing 1.5 billion dollars in bitcoin is probably a good example of the latter that's right that's right interesting so can you hold it um digitally i mean it's basically a special you know sort of sequence of data that equates to monetary value that's like as close as I can get to a simple definition of, of like cryptocurrency. And it's trade, you know, it's sort of like it's like peer-to-peer traded. And there are people who are allowed to sell it and not. And there are people who are allowed to record those transactions in these ledgers. But it's very confusing. That's the thing is like it quickly gets very confusing and hard to hard to understand. But it's if you think about it, especially when you're high, like money, why does money have any value? Like we decided that these pieces okay. of paper with things written on them had value, right? Why not just create a digital currency that like has like that we say has value because there's a limited amount of it and only certain people are allowed to create it, which is what you know they call it mining. But the what? thing is that I think people Pretty, I mean, I feel like people 10, 15 years ago were writing about how cryptocurrency was problematic on an environmental front because it requires computer transactions and data, which means that it requires data centers and data centers are like, you know, pretty big emitters. So right. My, yeah. my understanding, and I'm not an expert in this at all, but my well, general know. understanding is yeah. that the act of mining cryptocurrency is essentially you're trying to solve like a cryptographic puzzle. And it's it the, like the complexity of that puzzle is what makes it so secure, right? But the actual act of solving it requires a lot of computational power, which requires, you know, data centers, which are powered by often fossil fuel powered grids. And so ultimately it equates to a lot of energy and a lot of carbon emissions. Right, right. Um, but it's like, that's been known for a long time. So I've been very curious about why that has suddenly become a big story. I don't know, Maddie, if like, you know about something. Mm. I was like, was there some announcement or something? Like, I mean, you know, I remember reading about this like more than a decade ago. This is not new information. So I do believe that there was an analysis back in like February, I want to say it was the university. Oh yes. It was from the university of Cambridge put out some new data on Bitcoin showing like that it has an annual consumption of 124 terawatt hours of electricity. And so there was sort of this new analysis showing this very large, you know, comparable to (laughs) how many people are using Bitcoin as a sort of currency energy footprint. 
And, and I think that's why there was like a recent sort of news cycle on it. And then also Elon Musk has been talking about Bitcoin and Tesla has been buying Bitcoin and NFTs have taken off recently. And so for all these various reasons, Bitcoin and crypto have been in the news. And then there was on top of that, a new analysis showing that in fact, as we've known for years, as you say, Amy, it uses a shitload of energy. Yeah. 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 I'm going to read a, a tweet from a, a tech bro that Elon Musk thought was the most hilarious thing he saw uh, yesterday. So this um, <laughs> fans of the show will know that Elon Musk is Amy's like forever crush. Uh, um so this guy tweeted bitcoin uses too much energy he types on his two thousand dollar macbook pro in his five thousand dollar a month apartment while sipping on his ten dollar latte a paul krugman podcast softly plays in the background yeah anyway apparently you shouldn't be talking about the energy consumption of anything if you participate in society (laughs) right how dare you try to make the world a slightly better place yeah i i I think that you left out the most important part about that and that is that elon musk himself responded with a very prolific two emojis of the sideways crying laughing emoji that's true yes it's It's, it's real this tweet really cracked him up yeah so i gotta tell you i'm still confused as fuck because i'm a person who like as of last month, learn that when you put things in the cloud, it's not a literal cloud. Like every time you Google search, there's carbon <laughs> emissions attached to that. And don't laugh at me. I didn't know that. When they said cloud, I thought they meant cloud. <laughs> no, you're you're not alone, Mary. And damn, I think there are a lot of folks who are in exactly the same boat you are. You know, I don't think the marketing of it as a cloud is any accident. We like to think that our data is just going away somewhere and it's safe and secure and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's that. And yeah, I think. And that there's <laughs> no like physical, you know, yeah, that there are no emissions associated with digital activities, period. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, when they yeah. said cloud, I thought it was just like poof out into the air. And it's like, oh, you meant a cloud of like greenhouse gas emissions yeah it's like by cloud you mean like a massive warehouse with you know hundreds of hundreds to thousands of racks of computers like running 24 7 and consuming huge quantities of energy (laughs) yeah really buried the lead on that one (laughs) right yeah and i mean while we're on this idea of bitcoin and encryption and all of that what the fuck are NFTs? Yeah. I mean, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And that is about as much That's as I That's a terrible <laughs> fucking name. I mean, Bitcoin is a type of NFT. You just blew NF- my mind. So I think a good analogy, a simple analogy for an NFT would be like a trading card, like a one of a kind baseball card, say, that like only one person owns, except it's something digital. So it's not actually a physical thing you own. It's a digital thing that only you own, except of course, there could be millions of other digital copies of it out there, but only one of them is the NFT. And so this has become kind of popular in like the art world, for example, selling these non-fungible, you know, 
pieces of digital artwork for extraordinary amounts of money and the internet collectively ascribing some value to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really strange to me, honestly. It's, yeah, I'm much more comfortable thinking about like how the West Antarctic ice sheet is evolving than I am thinking about like how Grimes made 400000 dollars on an nft or how a four hundred thousand dollar like 50 second video by grimes exists it just like doesn't compute in my brain yeah (laughs) Yeah. but also that makes me wonder like why hasn't someone made an nft connected to the arctic glacier (laughs) right yeah (laughs) let's get some climate nfts out there i mean then again they're all bought and sold with these digital currencies, which have a huge climate impact, right? So I guess there's a little bit of a catch-22 there. All right. I'm slightly less confused than I was before. Um, (laughs) But since Elon Musk has already made an appearance, let's get into Teslas, because Teslas are a big thing Mm -hmm. on Silicon Valley. Let's play another clip. Was that a wise purchase, considering Richard just obliterated Pied Piper's runway hiring all those coders? Outed it a month ago, but still, it's an investment. As I understand, cars depreciate 10% as soon as they fall off the truck. Like that. So if the car costs $100, well, you just lost 10 Did it cost $100 or more? It's not about the money. I, my friend, am not part of the green revolution. Are you? Most electricity still comes from gas plants and coal-burning smokestacks. Do you know where your electricity comes from? The Hulk? Mm-hmm. Look how shiny it is. Plus, it has a frunk, a front trunk. You're hopping. Let me give you a ride to work. So Tesla <laughs> thing on the show is like, you know, when he wants to, when the character wants to seem woke, he'll talk about how the Tesla is his way of changing the world and being environmentalist or whatever. But it's very clear that it's just a status symbol. Yes. Yeah. I gotta say the first time I walked by a Tesla uh, showroom and saw that like front trunk thing, I was totally blown away. That just broke my brain a little bit. Not saying Tesla is the solution to all the world's problems, but that shit is wild. Yeah. (laughs) Have you driven a Tesla? Absolutely not. I have. Yeah. I was like, you know, I was a clean tech reporter when Tesla like launched. So it was like Mm. they were doing a million events all the time, letting people drive the cars and um, yeah. I mean, it's a fun car. It's a fucking nice car. Yeah, that does seem to be also what the character is really into. He's like really into the fact that the car can go really fast, really quickly, like insane mode and all of that. And it's kind of like, why, when would that ever be legal? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's sort of like this idea of Tesla worship kind of comes up in Silicon Valley and you can do everything else where like, flying for no fucking reason you can like like tesla is really the only thing you need to do to be an environmentalist yes yeah Yeah. and i mean i totally saw that happening in the bay area it feeds into this whole idea that we can still like that there's nothing wrong with 
capitalism and consumerism and endless growth as like general concepts. We just need to be purchasing and consuming different types of things. Right. 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 And I know you both know a, a lot about this, how much Tesla actually uses a lot of lithium and mm-hmm. where that's really coming from and what that can do. What is lithium and how does it play into Tesla? I can take that one if you want. Yeah. So lithium is this very lightweight element that is key to sort of the batteries that permeate our lives and that make enable modern technology to work the way that it does. So it has these properties that allow it to hold and release charge very quickly, very efficiently, many cycles before the battery degrades. So it's kind Kind of the one of the key raw materials you need to make a battery, whether that's a battery in your cell phone or your computer or a much larger version of those batteries, which goes into a Tesla or any other sort of electric uh, vehicle that's out there. So basically all electric vehicle battery chemistries that work at scale today are some sort of lithium battery chemistry that can be, you know, lithium with copper, nickel, cobalt. It can be lithium with phosphorus. There's different chemistries, but there's basically always going to be lithium there. And the thing about lithium and all of the other raw materials that go into batteries is this, you know, stuff isn't just uh, present abundantly everywhere. We can't just go shovel lithium out of our backyards. There's very specific parts of the world where it's concentrated and where we need to mine it if we're going to get enough lithium to fuel the, you know, sort of green energy transition that is necessary in order mm-hmm. to combat climate change. Right, um, right. Yeah. And some of the places that lithium is mined are places with, you know, local indigenous communities that don't necessarily want mining there or rural ranching and farming communities that don't want mining completely upending their way of life. And so there's these environmental justice concerns with just sort of going in and strip mining, you know, the South American salt flats for lithium, for example, that don't really make it into the conversation when we talk about the electric vehicle boom. Right. And the electric vehicle boom specifically as this, I I really feel like people still talk about it as this 100% great environmental solution with no trade-offs. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Again, yeah. it's just this idea of substituting one technology for another. Of course, we're all still going to drive cars. We're Americans. That's what we do. We're just going to mm-hmm. drive electric cars and all of a sudden, right. poof, everything is solved. Well, not mm-hmm. really. Like there's not actually enough raw materials out there for everyone to rapidly switch to an electric car. And even if there were, that would mean a lot of environmental degradation in other parts of the world, you know? And so it's a combination of electrifying our transit, but also sort of changing our whole mentality around mobility. And can we actually give up our personal cars and build cities to be denser and have more clean transit, clean public transit? So it's not, you know, a one-to-one switch of gas powered to electric cars really doesn't solve our problems. Right. Right. But I want to emphasize that I don't think it's anybody's, well, I don't think it's the general public's fault for misunderstanding it as we'll just go solar, we'll go wind, and it'll be fine. Because that really is how the story's been told for such a long time. Right. And I think that is 
part of the the downfall or the downside of not villainizing the fossil fuel industry the way it needs to be villainized because you think it's like oh they just made a mistake and they used the wrong energy we'll use the right energy and it won't be a problem and like a few episodes back we had Antonia Yuhas on for another one of our, our favorite episodes about oil and war and how you know how oil fueled the Iraq war well lithium can do the exact same thing if we're talking about a rare mineral we can start having lithium wars instead of oil wars and one of the things she said that really stuck with me because I honestly am still learning this that we can't consume any resource the way we consume fossil fuels that's so we right we really do mm-hmm. have to have to figure something else out and I don't think that that the story is being told that way that's um, right and I, and I kind of think that this like laser focus on solutions to climate change leaves out a lot of like a real analysis of the problems. And I know, Amy, you've been talking about that a lot on Twitter. Yeah, well, just the whole root cause thing. It's like green colonialism is still colonialism, you know, (laughs) like doing it for lithium, you know, versus oil or gold or whatever else we've decided we need to run our lives over the years. Like it's not any better just because there are no tailpipe emissions to electric vehicles. You know what I mean? mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, like they also, they really still haven't figured out what happens to all these batteries at the end of life either. Like I was going to say before that, you know, there is, it is actually possible to recycle lithium from batteries. It just hasn't been economically viable. So I think that will, we'll probably get to that point in the next 10 years or so, but there's still a bunch of other heavy metals in batteries. We're not even good at recycling lead batteries. You guys, we're not good at recycling plastic. Okay. the technology from 50 years ago. We still haven't figured that out, you know? Yeah. I wrote a piece for Grist a few months back on some battles over emerging lithium mines in Nevada. And I, there's a number of conservation organizations that are fighting these, these proposed projects that would have really severe environmental impacts on land that is sensitive habitat for a variety of you know, wildlife, including some endangered species. There's one in in Southern Nevada near Reno that would be, it's a proposed lithium mine that would be at the exact same, like literally on the exact same ridgetop that this species of wildflower lives. And this species lives nowhere else on the planet. So if you put the lithium mine there, you're basically choosing to drive an entire species completely extinct for mm-hmm. the purposes of extracting a metal for Tesla's, cars. you know, for cars. Yeah. And that was like I, a big part of Tesla's whole plan when they came into Nevada was like, we are going to restart Nevada's lithium mining industry. And yeah, yeah. I mean, Tesla's getting into that game too. They've there's been some talk about Tesla lithium mining claims in Nevada, and it's really unusual to see an automaker take an interest in the mining space. But I think it's really telling as to just how concerned these companies are about shoring up their supplies of these critical, you know, critical resources. I, I want to just add to what you were saying a moment ago about recycling, Amy, because the environmental groups that are paying attention to this space and are concerned about this clean energy fueled mining boom, I would say Earthworks is sort of the main one leading the charge on that. I've been saying for years that we need more and better recycling, something like 
less than 5% of materials from lithium ion batteries are recovered today. And for lithium specifically, it's like really low. It's, it might be less than 1%. And as you were saying, the, the technology, you know, there are techniques out there, but they're still kind of early stage and more R&D is needed to scale them up. And so environmental groups that are concerned about mining say that recycling needs to be a much bigger part of the solution, but we don't really see companies like Tesla investing huge amounts of money, at least not publicly reported, into bringing these technologies to technological readiness. Now, Tesla has been working on some sort of internal lithium ion battery recycling effort for some time, but it's a bit hard to tell how far along they are, how soon that's going to be ready. I did a story on this actually, and because I, I got a bunch of press releases from Tesla, maybe like I, I you know, I was a, a local radio reporter in Reno when the Gigafactory came in and they sent out all these press releases saying that they were going to, that they were going, that they had I mean, this is so ridiculous that they had figured out a closed loop. That is the phrase that they used. Closed loop lithium battery recycling. And I was like, if that's true, like that's a really huge deal because no one is a huge deal. Hey, real question. Real question. What is a closed loop? Oh, there's no waste at all. It's just like you basically turn one battery, like an old battery into a new battery. And that's it's it. like a hundred percent efficiency and no recycling industry on earth can play that. <laughs> okay. All right. So maybe this is a little niche, but honestly, hearing this conversation and the conversation about Bitcoin, uh, I don't know if either of you guys watched Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yes. Yes. I, okay. I have watched some Always Sunny. There's an episode where they like try to emulate the Dave and Buster's like Dave and Buster's bucks mechanism. Yes. Did you see this? Yes. And they're like, we just keep the money moving. You just like they just they have no fucking idea what they're doing, and they just wind up giving money away. And so Patty's bucks to people for free, assuming that will mean that they'll keep coming to the bar. But they mm-hmm. just come and spend their free money, get free drinks, and leave. Right. Um, and they're like, it's just a closed loop, and the money keeps moving, and so it doesn't make sense. So that's kind of what this is sounding yeah. like to me. Nice doing business with you, huh? All right, Shanty. Enjoy it. All right, enjoy yourselves. Boom! Okay. Hey, we I did think it. we made every single one of our Patty's dollars back, You're buddy. damn right. Thus creating the self-sustaining economy we've been looking for. That's right. How much fresh cash did we make? Fresh cash? Yes. Uh, well, zero. Zero if you're talking about U.S. currency. People didn't really seem interested in spending any of that. That's okay. So uh, when they run out of the booze, they'll come back in and they'll have to buy more Patty's dollars. Right. Keeping uh, it moving. That is assuming, of course, that they will come back here and drink. They will. They will, because we'll redistribute these to the shanties, thus ensuring them coming back in, keeping the money moving. Well, no, but if we just redistribute these, then people will continue to drink for free. Okay. How does this work, Mac? The money keeps moving in a circle. But, but we don't have any money. All we have is this. <laughs> I called up the, the like contact on this press release that I got, and I was like, tell me about this closed loop <laughs> battery. That's a pretty big deal. And they were like, well, you know, our batteries don't contain any heavy metals. And I was like, um, pretty sure they do. <laughs> and, and then they tried to tell me that they were doing, that they were capturing all of the lithium from the batteries too. And I'm, I was just like, I know that's not true. 
Like, I just, I know a hundred percent know, like, just tell me what you're actually doing. And they were like, well, it turned out they were recycling the, like the casing of the battery, mm-hmm. which is great. That's great. That needs to be done too. But it was just like this wild overstatement. And in keeping with a lot of the press that Tesla has gotten over the years, a whole bunch of reporters just reported that. Just just to draw a connection to another tech giant, this is reminding me a lot of Apple and its commitment to closed loop, you know, recycling of its iPhones. And I, Wait, I, I don't know. Is that real? Yeah. No, well, it's, it's not real today, but several years ago, Apple put out an aspirational statement, essentially, that it wants to stop mining the earth for new materials one day. And the way it's going to do this is it's going to develop this internal closed roof recycling system that involves these crazy robots that can disassemble 200 iPhones an hour and sort all the parts, and then they can melt them down and recover the metals and use those metals to create new iPhones. And it all sounds you know, totally, you know, amazing. And they put out these videos of these iPhone disassembly robots taking apart these phones and got like glowing press coverage from, you know, the entire tech media sphere over these cool robots. And it's just the same. Yeah, it gets back to, you know, what we were talking about at the outset of our conversation about innovation being the solution to everything, right? You know, you're just going to make a robot and all of a sudden you don't need to mine the earth anymore. Right. And that, and the whole thing about intentions being like the same as results, you know, it's, but we we really want to have a closed loop recycling system. That's great, but you don't. So, you know, right. You don't get credit just for thinking about it. And I would say it's, you know, it, it's a, there's a little bit of using these flashy solutions like a recycling robot or a closed loop battery recycling system, however that works, to sort of distract from other aspects of what the company is doing that are not so great and could potentially have a much larger environmental impact. Something that comes to mind with Tesla is Teslas are very hard to repair. Mm. You basically have to take your Tesla back to the dealership. There are very few independent repair shops that can open up and fix a Tesla. And that's kind of by design. Like they're not built in a way that makes it particularly easy for an independent auto mechanic to take them apart. They have all sorts of software locks associated with them and you need proprietary manufacturer tools in order to, you know, access diagnostic information about the vehicle. And, you know, this is the case for a lot of tech companies across, you know, many different sectors of the economy as they make their products hard to fix. And then we have to send them back to the manufacturer to fix, or maybe they replace them and maybe they just wholesale replace the item for us and give us a new one. But that creates more waste and it creates more economic churn and ultimately, you know, has a larger environmental impact. And that's not something you hear these companies talking about. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. 
I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery. And every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Okay, get ready. Here it comes. In building this peer-to-peer internet, the paradox that we're up against is that people won't want to participate until the quality is high. And the quality won't be high until um and um, the quality won't be high until we have a lot of people opt into the network so that presents a little bit of a, it presents a, a, a bit of a problem what would that we kind of need to build everything okay I, I don't know is it oh sorry guys bryce guys actually we've met oh hey donald uh it's jared now so gavin bryce is very discreet keep going this is great is bryce your assistant no, of course not. It's my transfusion associate. Which is? Are you really not familiar with parabiosis? Can't say that I am. Well, the science is actually pretty fascinating. Regular transfusions of the blood of a younger, physically fit donor can significantly retard the aging process. And Bryce is a picture of health. Just look at him. He looks like a Nazi propaganda poster. Oh. <laughs> 
to explain that to anyone who didn't get to see it so what's happening there is like one of the like main characters is trying to give his his spiel to this very big like basically what's his name like a Jeff Bezos type of person and in the middle of his presentation dude starts getting a blood transfusion from a much younger guy like it's normal like it's Tuesday right (laughs) and this is apparently called a blood boy and is that real I mean, it's been like a rumor in Silicon Valley forever. And I love that they were just like, oh yeah, it's real in this show. <laughs> I recently rewatched Mad Max Fury Road. So I'm getting some strong vibes of that. <laughs> I've never seen that. Oh, okay. There's also, yeah, I guess you would call them blood boys or something similar to that in, yes. in the movie. Yes. I mean, I do. The thing that is very real is the obsession in Silicon Valley of living forever. I don't know if you remember this, Maddie. I mentioned it to Mary the other day and she was like, no, when Google had its whole like live forever, like we're going to figure out how to disrupt death thing a few years ago. <laughs> what? You remember that? I, I That one escapes me, but it's not surprising at all. I mean, okay. I'm yeah. going to, I'm pulling up the website right now. Okay. Oh dear. Like it says, <laughs> and it was Peter Thiel. Of course it was. Oh, of course. Um, yes. So it's, it was like Google's immortality project. And this was in like 2016 that they started to announce it. It was Google's chief futurist was like, we could, we can totally start living forever. We like Ray Kurzweil, when he was Google's chief futurist, I don't know if he still is or not, but he said that we could start living forever by 2029. And we talk about wow. how they did that in 2016 and then dropped the, the subject altogether because who the fuck wants to live forever now? Well, and also it's not great for the climate if humans start living that long. It's not. <laughs> well, unless, Amy, unless we've all uploaded our brains into a renewably powered cloud and then yes, problem that's solved. what he's, that's basically what he was talking about was non-biological intelligence. Honestly, that idea, like the mind uploading into a cloud, which is like big in Silicon Valley as well, like scares the shit out of me. Like the so idea of just being like, disembodied cloud version of myself no I know people really want to do that yes and it kind of I feel like it plays into the whole like do you remember Soylent something like that when there's this weird Silicon Valley has this like very weird thing about wanting to either optimize the body or just not have to deal with the physical body at all are we talking about Soylent the drink Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. Like- yes. I actually no, just dumped real. a lot of bottles of it down the drain when I moved because <laughs> when my husband got surgery a few years ago, it was the only thing he could drink because he had uh, jaw surgery and his jaw was shut. But it was a thing in like in the tech world for a while where all these, all these people were like, this is great. Now I don't even have to think about what I'm going to eat. I just have this stuff and it's optimized it's like, for nutrition yeah. and whatever. And I was like, what is wrong with you? Like, why do you hate the human experience so much? It's like they all wanted to be astronauts, but didn't make the cut. Cause wasn't Elizabeth Sharp yeah. again, Theranos cameo. She was mm-hmm. kind of like that where she was like, I just drink the same water. I wear the same turtleneck. I eat the same yes. food every single day and it was like you're a legit robot yes yes so <laughs> i don't know and it's what's it's the thing. fuck is the point of living forever if you're not living i think it gets 
back to the whole like obsession with efficiency is like, mm. how can we just optimize everything, which is sort of a big goal of a lot of tech companies in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, like there's certain things about life that don't necessarily need to be optimized. <laughs> well, they're like reverse optimizing it, you know? Like efficiency isn't necessarily optimal, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's make food with no taste so you can eat it faster. What? Yeah. That was literally the reason for colonization. Like you're going like, at yeah. least keep the spices. Bitch, like what? That mm. doesn't make sense. So, so anyway. There was a startup several years back. I just looked this up to refresh my memory called Ambrosia. I don't know if they still exist, but they were... <laughs> actually harvesting the blood of teens for some sort of medical experimentation maybe related wow. to life extension what? um yeah wow. yeah this this was a thing and there were a lot of stories several years back about peter Thiel taking an interest in this company i don't actually know if that's true there's some competing news accounts of this but that it is very likely why it came up in Silicon Valley is because there was this whole news cycle around Peter Thiel wanting to, you know, drink the blood of the young. Yes. Yes. Well, because, yeah, I mean, Peter Thiel is, I mean, wait, who is that? Oh, okay. So actually I think that, you know, the weird, like the super weird initial funder guy in Silicon Valley, he's based on Peter Thiel. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Peter Thiel is a tech billionaire. He, what, he co-founded PayPal with Elon Musk. That was his thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a good friend of Elon Musk. He's probably most famous in media circles for secretly bankrolling the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker and getting the entire family of Gawker sites, basically. Because, oh. because they ran a, they ran like some gossip about him in Ballywag, which was one of right. their sites. Right, right. So he's the guy who got shut down. Did they out him? Is that what happened with Peter? They did. Right. They wrote an article. It was definitely shitty. Don't get me wrong. But saying, yeah, yeah, they wrote an article saying he was gay. I I don't know the details of the story, but my understanding is it was sort of like an open secret in Silicon Valley. You know, maybe it wasn't such an open secret. I don't know. But it, Peter Thiel harbored a grudge against Gawker for many years but he also like he was a big Trump backer he's kind of the guy that started the whole like New Zealand climate bunker thing oh yeah he's really into he's really into seasteading so like the idea of like lawless floating nations that's a Peter Thiel thing he has said that women shouldn't have been given the vote that is another of Peter Thiel's greatest hits he's an interesting character wow the last thing we wanted to talk about Maddie is about how just like the the sort of journalism and tech intersection and this shows up Mm. in Silicon Valley a bunch too because Kara Swisher makes a few different she makes a few different cameos I'm gonna play a little bit from one of them yeah any young founder today to pursue your dream not for profit or valuation or material wealth but for the good of humanity which is easy for you to say being a billionaire (laughs) <laughs> let me change the subject i have i don't care for your tone kara i'm getting a little tired of this bias against the leaders of our industry 
I'm continually creating jobs and helping people. And I'm tired of getting slapped for it. I didn't steal the money I have. And I resent being treated like I did. You know, there is a climate in this country that is very dangerous. It's dangerous out there for billionaires. <laughs> There's that attitude again, Kara. Billionaires are people too. We are leaders in technology, in industry, in finance. Look at history. Do you know who else vilified a tiny minority of financiers and progressive thinkers called the Jews? Oh, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Did you just compare the treatment of billionaires in America today to the plight of the Jews in Nazi Germany? Absolutely. Oh. One could argue that billionaires are actually treated worse. And we didn't even do anything wrong. We're an even smaller minority. There's a lot more of them. <laughs> the amount of cringe. Um, I feel like there was a point in Silicon Valley where Gavin Belsum morphed from being like a Jeff Bezos stand-in to an Elon Musk stand-in. And like he was yeah. full on Elon Musk in that clip. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Anyway, that in that clip, actually, Kara Swisher's not doing that much. But like in the in another one, it kind of like they they kind of were poking fun at like access journalism thing that happens in tech, which I feel like has really started to shift a little bit in the last maybe four or five years. And just to sort of define that term for people, you know, there are these realms of journalism like celebrity coverage or politics where a lot of times, you know, sort of expectation is that in exchange for getting the interview or the access to that person, you will not be very critical of them. And tech like really thrived on that for a very long time. And I really think that, you know, Elon Musk's kind of recent turn against the media is basically that like his luck kind of run, ran out on that front, you know, that like people started mm -hmm. to report on labor abuses in his factories. And like now I, there was just a story this week about like a bunch of, of Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act violations from Tesla factories. And so I think, you know, he was in his, in that like kind of way that, that like a lot of white people in particular will start to feel like they're being targeted just when they're treated like everybody else. I think Elon <laughs> Musk, the minute he started to sort of, you know, have journalists treat him the same way that they would treat any other company that they're, that they're writing about, he really couldn't handle it. But anyway. Yeah. yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First thought is that Tesla has really taken this to an extreme. They actually dissolved their public relations department last year. So they no longer, what? there is no longer like a Tesla PR contact who a journalist can reach out to, to get comment you know on a story about the company. Girl, it shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a weird thing to navigate as a journalist because when I write about Tesla, it's, my editors still want me to seek comment. And so I end up emailing maybe like the investors relation email address or someone I know who left the company or it's just, it's so bizarre, but it, I mean, it's totally on brand. It's this well, total temper tantrum where they're like, you know, how dare you ever write anything that's not glowingly positive? We're just going to yeah. any access you have. His whole attitude is we don't owe you access to anything, you know? Correct. Um, yeah. And I mean, Gizmodo felt that a lot because it covered, I mean, feel, feels that a lot. I haven't 
you know, been with the site for a few years, but I, I know that it's, you know, still the case that it's harder to get access at uh, a technology website that covers tech companies critically. And yeah, I mean, Gizmodo famously was not invited to Apple events for many years after leaking the iPhone 4 back in like 2010. Oh, God, years that's and years right. to get invited yeah. to Apple events again after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I think what you said, Amy, about it maybe waning a little in recent years, I think personally, I have experienced a little bit of a shift in which maybe a few years back, if I was going to a tech company with a critical story about their environmental practices, I would get this super defensive reaction or like a non-reaction. And I think they're maybe a little bit more accustomed to it now. And so it's a little easier to work with the PR departments there, but that's, you know, not to say that there's been a vast improvement. It's still, if I'm writing a critical story about Microsoft, at best I can hope for a boilerplate statement that doesn't really say much of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that maybe three years ago, I wouldn't have gotten that at all. I'm curious, how important is it to these companies to seem like really green and climate conscious? Because my impression of Silicon Valley and tech companies is that they are very climate conscious. And I, I'm learning mm -hmm. that's not the truth. But I, it seems like the reason that I think that is because it's been important to them to portray themselves that way. I, yeah, I think they absolutely want you to think that. I mean, I don't know if you pay attention to Apple Day events, but Apple has these like big kind of PR blitzes where it announces its new products. And, and in recent years, they have been very focused on like the environmental aspects of their products. So they had the iPhone 12 launch last fall and there was like a two and a half minute segment in which Lisa Jackson, who's former head of the EPA under Obama, yeah. who's now mm -hmm. Apple's VP of environment and policy. She did this two and a half minute segment explaining how environmentally great the iPhone 12 is, how it uses more recycled materials and its carbon footprint is lower and uh, how Apple won't be giving you a new wall charger with it to reduce e-waste and also save money, but they don't say that part. And so, it, yeah, it's become a huge part of brand image for a number of, I, I would say all the major tech companies, but really a lot of companies in Silicon Valley put a lot mm -hmm. of their sort of PR and marketing muscle into greenwashing essentially. Yeah. They are, you know, I just want to say too, that it's actually, it's funny to me because I feel like the tech industry does have this much, much better image than like the fossil fuel industry, for example, but they yeah. use like all the same tactics. Like they're, they're really kind of second only to the oil industry in greenwashing, mm -hmm. even this whole like access thing and sort of punishing journalists that criticize them or don't, you know, don't kind of conform to the rules that they try to set for media. That is mm -hmm. a tactic that was pioneered by mobile oil. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's an interesting connection. Yeah. I mean, I think it's another thing we need to talk about if we're going to talk about tech and journalism and also like tech and climate, because journalism is a big part of solving climate change is how tech, how these tech giants have kind of disrupted journalism. I, I don't fully understand what just happened at Medium, but I'm sure the two of you do. Amy has this crazy story yeah. about Elon Musk getting into the journalism game. <laughs> you remember this? Um, um, Maddie Pravda when Elon Musk- You better explain it. 
Oh my God. Okay. This is, this was like part of his initial hissy fit about journalists, you know, daring to write not totally positive stories about Tesla. He was going to start this thing that would use an algorithm to rate journalists on their credibility based on sources that they used and like how many times they used certain words. And it was going to, it was going to give them a rating on credibility and bias. How did he rate you? But it was like, it was, but honestly, he was like the third or fourth tech guy to, to, you know, say that they were going to do that. They've been kind of threatening that for years. Like they all are like, oh, like I'm going to create you know, a Yelp for journalists or, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to write an algorithm that's going to finally make the media honest. And like, Mm -hmm. I love, (laughs) can I just say, I love Amy's tech bro voice. (sighs) It's so funny. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead, Maddie. I would just like to point out that the, the thing they're looking for already exists and it's called journalism. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, you do have Yes, all of these guys who've gone a step further and actually have, you know, said, oh, I'm going to disrupt media, right? Like Medium is a good example. I'm going to create this platform and it's going to do this and it's going to do that. Substack is another good example. I mean, Jeff Bezos bought the fucking Washington Post. Can you explain what's happening over there? What? Can you explain really quick what happened at Medium? And then I want us to talk about Substack. Yes. So Medium about like five years ago decided that it was going to create and fund, you know, actual publications and hire editors and writers and, you know, have so that it could have a mix of like user-generated content of, you know, people writing whatever they want on there, but also some like sort of curated publications. And it decided seemingly from one day to the next to just like scrap that idea altogether and lay off a bunch of people, including our friend, Brian Merchant and lots of other great, yeah, Drew Costley. Although I think he had left for the AP before right yeah. before so then. But, my, yeah. my understanding is that the CEO offered everyone a buyout mm-hmm. and basically sent an email around indicating that the focus of Medium was going to shift away from these, you know, editorial journalistic sites to sort of curating content from the sludge pile, for lack of a better word. Like just everyone can blog on Medium and Medium's focus was going to shift to uplifting individual voices among the bloggers seemingly taking some inspiration from Substack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes me sad because I would not have a platform at all had it not been for Medium. Like I got started writing on Medium. It was just like a place where I could publish my essays that I couldn't get published anywhere else because (laughs) the gatekeeping around climate journalism and just journalism in general wasn't open to me because the way I wanted to talk about climate change was not the way that it was already being talked about. And so I I wouldn't be talking to y'all today if it weren't for medium or platform kind of like it. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about the idea starts from a good place and can do good things, but then it goes down this road that's just, damn it, if you had just stayed on the path you were on. I know. Yeah. You could have done real good. Right. Yeah. I was really um, sad about it. I'll just make a quick plug out to shout out to One Zero, which was Medium's tech publication. I wrote yeah. um, a handful of stories for them over the last year or so. And 
you know, there are very few outlets on the internet that'll carry a story on like tech and climate that like really aggressively like looks into the issues. And they're, mm. I would say one of the outlets where I was able to get those stories, you know, get them to see the light of day. Right. And so I really appreciated One Zero's editorial focus as an outlet. And I think they did fantastic work and it's a huge yeah. bummer. Yeah, for sure. And having that type of accountability journalism for both tech and climate change is just really important and such a void. And I don't feel like the establishment press, you know, like some of the more vaunted and established journalism outlets really have the infrastructure or even the appetite for that type of journalism. So a place like Medium really could have done some good. I, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't know. I think the unfortunate thing with a lot of these places and I feel like this again is reminding me of Substack too that like I think that initially they wanted to provide this open platform to do exactly that like kind of break down some of the gatekeeping allow people to like you know I mean I wrote stuff for Medium too even when I even when I was working for more establishment outlets it was like I didn't want to if I didn't feel like going through the rigmarole of pitching an editor, you know, mm-hmm. I would write it on there. And sometimes things, in fact, actually that, I mean, an, an essay I wrote on Medium led to me writing a book in 2018 or whatever. So, so yeah, but there is this desire in the tech world for, again, I feel like it kind of goes back to this hubris of we're going to solve every problem with technology. And it's, they keep doing this thing over and over where they're like, we're going to solve the problems with journalism. And then they just sort of slowly learn and repeat all the problems that like other outlets have you know, gone through. And I think that's what happened here. It's, oh, it's actually really expensive to do good journalism and like, there's right. not a great revenue model for it. So like my only issue with medium in this case really is that, you know, it's again, it's just such arrogance that like, do you really, you think the problem is that no one, but you knows how to run a website. That's not the problem, dude. Like <laughs> it's, yeah. um, it's not that all those idiots at every Every other, you know, outlet just haven't figured out how to make digital content pay. It's that like the model is fundamentally broken and it has been from the start, you know, (laughs) right. And, you know, I wish that you guys would actually come up with a new idea that does solve and disrupt the revenue model. But all you keep doing is getting a bunch of VC money and then cosplaying publisher for a while. And like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which actually happened on Silicon Valley too. Yeah, it did. It did. Exactly. And it's, and then, yeah, like I said, they realized, oh, it's actually hard to, you know, have an editorial policy that you, that you enforce, or it's actually hard. To, you have to, if you want really like good journalists, you have to pay them like a decent rate and that's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think what's really disturbing to me is these like sort of venture capital funded like journalism outfits or, you know, billionaire CEOs who want to disrupt journalism or whatever, like they, they come in, I think, as we've been saying throughout this conversation with a good intention, but not a really deep understanding of what journalism is and what it needs to thrive. And then sort of see their work, not, you know, paying see their investment, not paying the sort of dividends they were expecting immediately. And coming to the conclusion that the problem is like journalism itself or, you know, the traditional news media ecosystem just like 
doesn't, you know, the traditional publishing model doesn't work in the 21st century. Like they, they sort of jump into a space, throw some money into it, don't see a good ROI and then decide, well, that's actually broken. This is the future. Like I'm thinking of the letter that the CEO of Medium <laughs> sent out to all of the staff writers and the editors, basically telling them they could have a buyout. And I actually just pulled it up to refresh myself on it. And he says, and this is a quote, I think a significant factor in the fact that, you know, these medium editorial sites haven't paid off is that the role of publications in the world, not just on medium, has decreased in the modern era. I don't mean the role of professional editorial, but the idea of an imprint imprimatur that establishes credibility or trust is more important than ever and well-established editorial brands still have meaning. But today, credibility and affinity are primarily built by people individual voices rather than brands. And so he's basically saying like outlets don't matter anymore. Individual voices do. And Which is exactly mm-hmm. what Substack has said too. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But yeah. to me, I'm just like, the problem with that is that then you end up with a shitload of op-eds and no actual information, you know? Right. Like an <laughs> right. investigative story often takes a full team. You know, it's, there's a lot of layers of editing and fact checking and research. And it's really hard to pull all that off as an independent and even harder to make it, you know, <laughs> a financially Viable. successful endeavor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, I think that's actually a really good sub, uh, lead into talking about Substack. So our newsletter hot take started on Substack, and Maddie, your newsletter also started on Substack, right? Yes. One of you explain actually what Substack is. <laughs> it's it's a newsletter publishing platform. So it's like a very simple to use content management system where you can go in and write a newsletter, and it combines the content management tools of a blog with the like sending email capabilities of MailChimp and you don't have to pay to send the emails. That's like how Substack got a lot of people to to sign up because you do have to pay to send emails on MailChimp or some of these other places. Mm -hmm. And they initially said that they were just providing this suite of tools for people who wanted to send and eventually monetize newsletters. But the reality is that they were recruiting and paying some writers and not others. And they were not transparent about that. And they also had uh, a content moderation policy that they were not actually enforcing. So, you know, the kind of the argument that came up was like, well, you actually have an editorial policy, you're just not disclosing it. And there were some issues with the fact that several of the people that they were recruiting and paying were people who had been actually deplatformed for, you know, hate speech, things that came right up to the line of hate speech. Often many of them were, were super transphobic. I don't know. So anyway, it was like this big kind of a big bust up in the media world. And, and people were kind of going back and forth about, you know, oh, well, you know, you can't control what people publish and this and that. And my argument was always like, I'm not trying to control what people publish, but they are being disingenuous. They are claiming to just be a platform when they are in fact a publisher. And those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
So uh, yeah. spoiler alert, neither of our newsletters are still on Substack. Both of our newsletters, <laughs> are, we kind of follow your lead, Maddie. So first, can you just plug oh. your newsletter and tell people to subscribe to it? But then yes. also talk about your decision to leave Substack. Yeah, sure. So my newsletter is called The Science of Fiction. It is now mm-hmm. on Ghost. And I actually just set up a custom domain. So uh, the domain, Ooh. if you want to check it out, is uh, sciof.fi. That's S-C-I-O-F dot F-I. Thank you, Finland, for giving me that cool custom domain. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> just got that up and running, which I'm excited about. My newsletter is basically my space to geek out about science fiction and science. I am a huge science fiction nerd. I've been watching Star Trek my whole life. I love all the Marvel movies and the comics and I'm just like a big nerd and I'm also really into science. And so I see often a lot of parallels and synergies between what, you know, shows up in science fiction and science in the real world. And so it's just sort of a newsletter to talk about the intersections between the two of those. And given my focus in my real job on climate journalism, I try to plug good climate fiction and environmental fiction whenever I can. So keep an eye out for some of that coming up. Anyway, that's my newsletter. So yeah, my decision to leave Substack. So I I would say a couple of months ago, maybe it was back in February, Substack had just recently launched this Discover tool. So this was something on the Substack homepage where it makes it easier to find other newsletters that might fit your interests. And so they launched it. I can't remember if it was late last year or early this year. And then they added a science tab to it. And that was exciting for me because my newsletter sort of popped up somewhere in, you know, (laughs) down around like the number 12. So nothing crazy special or anything, but it was on the discover page under the science tab. And I was excited about that. And then I scrolled up to the top to see what are the big science newsletters on Substack. And one of the very top newsletters, I think it was maybe number two, and I haven't checked to see if it still is, was this uh, pretty questionable newsletter that seemed entirely focused on sort of picking apart trans identity and asking whether yes. trans people are actually who they say they are based on science and evolutionary psychology. And it was like, pretty cringy and made me pretty upset. And so I kind of wrote a tweet or two about that and then nothing happened. And then maybe a month later, this whole conversation exploded about transphobic content flourishing on Substack. And it wasn't just this one newsletter I saw. There were apparently a number of writers, one in particular who has been attracting the ire of a lot of other Substack writers in recent months, who kind of regularly publish these posts, sort of targeting trans folks and just like really hateful, upsetting content. And, uh, you know, I, I, it just really bothered me. I have a lot of, you know, trans friends, fellow writers who are trans, you know, some of my former like bosses and mentors and people who I really look up to in like the writing community. And I just didn't want any association with that. And then shortly after that, you know, started to become a big conversation piece in the media sphere, 
it came out as Amy was just saying that Substack was paying large advances to writers to leave whatever other job they had come to the platform, but not calling it an editorial policy. And that just struck me as very disingenuous and incorrect. (laughs) And just really, I don't know, caused me to lose more faith in the platform after already sort of getting worked up about all of this, you know, content that I felt was in clear violation of their content moderation platforms as well, content moderation policies, as well as just like sort of basic decency. Mm. So it was sort of the combination of those factors that prompted me to leave the platform. And, you know, I will say it wasn't a terribly hard decision for me because my newsletter is young and it's small and I'm not you know, financially dependent on Substack. And Mm -hmm. I understand that not everyone is in that situation. And I, you know, I've been trying not to sort of dictate how I feel other people should approach this because it it can be a really serious decision for folks to, you know, if you've put all your eggs in this basket and this is your livelihood to just like up and move is a huge decision. And, you know, I don't want to tell anyone that that's the right thing for them to do, but it felt like it was the right thing for me to do. And so I did it. Yeah. 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 I mean, thank you so much for all of that. I feel like, you know, uh, I, Amy honestly did most of the heavy lifting on this and our decision to also move to ghost. So I'll throw it to her to talk about what that looked like for her. But I know we were like, we were watching you pretty closely too. Yeah, I was watching to see how the Substack founders were going to react to people, you know, making these, like asking these questions in public and their reactions sucked. They basically kind of, kind of said that people were trying to thought to be the thought police and that they weren't interested in that. And they doubled down on this whole, we're just a platform thing and like free speech and no censorship and all of that stuff. But, but yeah, they still sort of. Uh, they, I mean, to my knowledge, they still haven't actually really addressed any of this stuff. And the reality yeah. is, I mean, you know, Ghost also lets you monetize. You, there's like a, a seamless transfer of your paid subscriptions over to Ghost because they both use the same payment processor. And we didn't have any kind of like a contract with Substack. I think it's tough for people, you know, there, there are people that were given advances that they're still in the process of paying back, or there are people who signed some kind of a contract with Substack and had to figure out, you know, what that allows them to do legally. And, and that's all super complicated. And honestly, like it fucking sucks that it's down, that it's up to individual writers to, you know, yeah. like solve uh, again. I mean, to me, it's always, you know, this is my soapbox forever. Like I just, mm-hmm. it's like individual people can't solve a systemic ethical problem. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like it's well, the pro- like, why are these guys even in charge of this platform? Why do they have so much money to like quote unquote disrupt publishing instead of like actual people who come from fucking journalism and know how to do it you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. like why do like why like why do we like need them to make a better decision in the first place you know and why should it have to come down to to independent writers who if they are 
financially dependent on Substack took a huge risk leaving their staff jobs to do that. And, you know, yeah. 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 I think, I think the personal nuance of everyone's situation who's caught up in this really sort of underscores the fact that (laughs) you personal choices cannot solve a systemic issue. Right. I've spoken with people who would want to leave Substack, but are financially tied to the platform or have a contractor, you know, whatever extenuating circumstances and just, you know, can't make that decision right now. And so, and, and yeah, and then there's people on the other end who, you know, feel like leaving Substack isn't the right choice because you're sort of ceding the platform to the trolls. And, you know, if all the good people leave, that's going to just make it even worse. And, uh, you know, I, understand that argument as well. But again, it's, there's a whole spectrum of individual ideas and situations here. And we as individuals cannot be expected to solve this problem. Right. 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 It's like, I'm just, you know, honestly, to me, I'm just, I just see it as like another, just like yet another example of like, why the whole media ecosystem needs to be fixed because you know I don't know yeah again I'm like I don't actually want a fucking tech bro with VC money making decisions about what media policy is and what an editorial policy is and like how that should all work and whatever fast and breaking shit exactly it's like (laughs) I don't want them anywhere near journalism and it's not because you know I have some sort of like elitist approach to it. It's because I, I don't think that they even understand what it's supposed to do, never mind what it already does or has done and what it should look like in the future. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the other thing to understand about Substack is that, so if you are like our newsletters would have been financing the newsletters of these people that Substack was choosing to pay. Just wanted to add that <laughs> Substack attempted to rebut that idea. I don't think they were very successful, but they claim that all of the advance money that they're putting towards some of these writers who are coming in are from their initial venture capital fundraising and that they are not putting the money that they've collected from subscriptions. They get a 10% subscription fee on everyone's newsletters into paying these advances for writers, which is okay. There's a degree of separation there, but it's, well, does that really mean you're not supporting you know, those writers that are hand-selected by this platform. You you know what I say to that, Maddie, is show us the fucking paper trail. Fine. (laughs) You want to, yeah, fine. Because I had a reporter say to me, well, I confirmed that they're, you know, they're not paying this person and they're using money this way. And I was like, oh, you confirmed it? Did they show you financial statements? And she was like, no, but one of the co-founders told me and I was like I'm sorry I'm gonna need a little more than a spokesperson said so yeah like exactly (laughs) there's no documentation and it's also kind of a weak argument right because like you're still giving your subscription revenue to this platform and that platform is making editorial decisions as it grows as a platform whether or not it's specifically using money from that bank account or that other bank account to do so that's right that's right. Yeah. And I happen to know that they are now recruiting, you know, more like leftist progressive writers as like their <laughs> way of trying to like counter this whole thing, which I'm like, that's not, 
that's not the, sure they that's not even are. what people are asking you to do you idiots i mean i just yeah. right is it yeah. i mean honestly these responses sound to me like peak white fragility right like yeah, why exactly. are you critiquing me i'm part of the solution right it's, i had a whole thing this week on twitter with extinction rebellion out of washington dc yeah. where like they did this like literally shitty protest and wound <laughs> up creating more work like they they dumped literal shit on the white house lawn mm -hmm. and workers had to clean that sh literal shit up what do you think the sanitation workers in dc are right like exactly and they were upset with me for critiquing that and reached out to me to in quote to engage me but their idea of engaging me was to like chide me for criticizing them and it's actually how about you get your shit together how about that hey. instead hey. of hmm, i've seen shit a lot <laughs> I tweeted about that same exact thing and nobody from Extinction Rebellion reached out to me. So yeah, exactly. I bet they I bet they fucking regret reaching out to me because I I was not timid in my response to them, right? <laughs> well, our plans went awry and you're someone so deeply respects you and we don't want you to criticize us. And it's well, maybe if someone I deeply respect criticized me, I might try learning from that and take it as a gift. Instead, they're like, well, we want to reach out to you and talk to you about how you shouldn't criticize us and right that kind of is what the substack people sound like to me that right. instead of learning from it and like doing better their response is to get defensive yeah it's like how dare you we're doing something you, good Yes. Yeah. It's like, how dare you not appreciate the way that we are just that we are choosing to solve journalism for you Go fuck that. Exactly. You're welcome. And honestly, I think the thing I want to close on actually is why this is a climate problem. Yeah. Because if we're, I think that, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how some of the established media outlets don't really know how to talk about climate because it is such a, it is such a not revolutionary problem, but kind of like it's unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't fit the templates that they've had before. So they don't really know what they're doing with it. And so there's a lot of gatekeeping from honestly, people who just don't know what the fuck they're doing. And so right. there is a need for a thinking different, but then you get these tech companies in there and they fuck it up even further. And now like, where's the accountability journalism that's right that's right well yeah like yeah. what maddie was saying these kinds of investigative stories that really do require a lot of time and a lot of like really careful research and double checking are getting completely obliterated in favor of hot takes <laughs> no pun intended but like <laughs> okay. you know it's All like right. like maddie Gleason uh -oh. is not going on substack and like writing reported stuff he's just like spouting off random opinions you know and it's really i just yeah i just feel like if yeah i i just yeah, yeah I'm, very, I'm very concerned about like where i mean just today actually i don't know if you guys saw this that like half of the wnyc staff got laid off that's awful which is really bad you know and there's we've seen so many outlets go under this year and we've seen so many outlets have massive layoffs we've seen a yeah. total decimation of local news once again right. and it's just and actually right. oh that was the new thing that Substack announced is that they're gonna launch <laughs> back local and i was just like that's not yeah. that's yeah. not a yeah. problem yeah, it kind of feels like they're not so much disrupting journalism or optimizing journalism, they're gamifying it. 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sort of turning it into like this survival of the fittest thing is like, whoops, I guess that didn't work. Guess I'll move on because they'll always be fine. Like That's these right. rich white yeah. guys will always be fine. So it is like a video game to them. Mm-hmm. Well, also, well, honestly, they've taken the thing that has been the biggest problem for journalism in the last 10 years, which is like that as journalism became, you know, kind of moved digital, that this whole, like the whole ad revenue model fed into clickbait and influencer culture and all of those things. And like all of these, what these guys are doing is just like increasing that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bright like spots I've seen in climate journalism in recent years have like nothing to do with individual op-ed writers. Like they have everything to do with, you know, specific editors and specific newsrooms, like making a concerted investment and bringing a team of really good people together and giving them the resources they need. Like as you were saying, Mary, it's a really basic solution. Like we know what the fucking solution is. It's not a mystery. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like the way climate journalism is going to be successful and help move the needle on this issue is sustained investments in, you know, teams that can do really ambitious and impactful work. I mean, that's what I believe. And I just, you know, I don't see the VC startup model (laughs) as getting us there, you know, yeah, or even taking an interest in that. That's just not what they're about. So, yeah, no. So they're interested in like applying, you know, kind of the things that work for ROI and growth in tech to journalism. And my problem with that is that that is the thing that has been slowly killing journalism and they're just sort of like speeding it up and like getting some money out of it in the the meantime. Yeah, it's bleak, man. And I guess if anything, I want to leave the, the listeners with this, that journalism and storytelling are climate solutions and we need to invest in them just as much as we invest in anything else and yeah like we need investigative reporters i need more investigative reporting on climate accountability so that i control better that's right that's really (laughs) this is what it's all about hell yeah we need grist for the troll mill you know we do anyway thank you for joining us for this episode maddie i learned a lot yeah this was so fun thank you guys so much for having me Okay, so thank you so much to Maddie for coming um, on the show to talk to us for this slightly unconventional but very interesting episode of Hot Take. But you should be following Maddie Stone on Twitter. She's at the Mad Stone, and you should sign up for her newsletter on Ghosts, the Science of Fiction. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And you should also be following us. I'm at Amy Westervelt. Mary is at Mary Hegler, and the show is at real hot take all right yeah keep fucking that chicken keep fucking that chicken